Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Twitter isn't dead, but it's getting there, says Vox Tech reporter Shireen Ghaffari about the chaotic six months since tech billionaire Elon Musk took over the social media platform. NPR went silent on Twitter last week after Musk misleadingly labeled it state-affiliated media, then government-funded media. But this week, more public news organizations followed NPR, including the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Since Musk took charge, the site has seen rising hate speech, major software glitches, and new data show that worldwide Twitter usage is down. We look at how the Twitter decline started and how it's going next on Forum. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Elon Musk has been on a bit of a media tour to reassure advertisers that Twitter is still a valuable place to be. Though not on NPR, of course, which quit the social media site last week. After first being labeled state-affiliated media, then later government-funded media, which NPR also found objectionable. NPR's departure, and that of several other public news organizations since, including a pause by the CBC, come right around the six-month mark of Musk taking charge of the platform. And this hour, we look at the impact of both the departures and his leadership. And let me tell you who is joining us. Shireen Ghaffari is senior correspondent covering the social media industry for Vox with a V. Shireen, welcome to Forum. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Bobby Allen is also with us, business reporter covering tech for NPR. Hi, Bobby. Hey, good to be here. So I want to start with you, Bobby, really quick. You tried to get Musk's reaction to NPR's decision to go silent on the platform. What happened? So I emailed Elon when we all woke up and saw that a label that said that NPR was state-affiliated media had been slapped on our account. I emailed him and said, hey, how do you justify this? What is this all about? And he didn't reply. I had a few follow-ups. And finally, I sent him an, an email that was just a series of question marks, hoping I would get his attention. And he engaged with it. And he said, look, I'm all about fairness. If we're going to label state-affiliated accounts abroad with this label. We should also do the same in the U.S. And I said, I think you might be mistaken. NPR is not state-affiliated. And I, I pointed him to NPR's financial breakdown of where, where our annual budget comes from. And he said, well, what about the leadership? You know, who makes editorial decisions? We engage in this sort of back and forth. And it ended with him saying, okay, we're going to soften the language to state-funded, not state-affiliated. 
And after that exchange, um, you know, basically said to me that he didn't do his homework before he made this policy decision. He put a label on NPR's account calling us state affiliated and then started asking some pretty basic questions about NPR as an organization, which is not exactly how most CEOs operate in America. Right. Usually you do your research and then you decide. But Elon Musk sort of operates the opposite way. Yeah. And for people wondering why state affiliated or government funded, why that designation is objectionable to NPR, how do they explain that? Remind us. Yeah, I talked to someone who helped develop the labels. And this person told me, a former Twitter executive, this person told me that they were developed, these labels were developed as a way of telling the Twitter audience when a tweet is coming from an outlet that might be propaganda, right? So outlets in China, outlets in Russia that might be pushing disinformation or narratives that have a very loose relationship with the truth. And before this label was applied, Twitter would do a lot of due diligence and have a lot of deliberations, a lot of internal debate, and they didn't affix these labels on accounts lightly. So Elon Musk putting this label kind of glibly on NPR's account really flies in the face of you know, a whole regime and a whole structure that trust and safety folks at Twitter, um, you know, you know, mounted before Elon came around. So um, he really sort of turned the tables on this whole labeling thing. And it ended up in the eyes of executives at NPR being a sort of stigma as a way to sort of delegitimize NPR as a news organization. It sounds like for NPR, too, there really wasn't much of a business case for staying on either. You mentioned this as well, Bobby. Yeah, you know, when you look at the analytics in terms of where our audience comes from when when they read our digital stories, very very few people actually click through tweets. I think it's something like 2% of our digital audience came from Twitter, which is a reminder to people outside of the media world that just because something goes viral doesn't mean that people are actually reading the story. And so I think there was a pretty strong business case to be made even before this sort of chaos around the labeling um, started that is Twitter really worth it, right? And, um, you know, executives at NPR, you know, did not take this decision lightly, really thought about it. And, and just, you know, they concluded that this is not a platform that the network can trust. It's not a platform um, that we really want to be on anymore in an active way, because it seems like NPR and most news organizations have no choice but to be at the mercy of this mercurial billionaire's whims. Well, several other news outlets have also gone silent. PBS, I mentioned the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, but also other public media member stations like WBUR in Boston, KCRW and LAist and KPCC in Southern California. You've got Denver, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati Public Radio, Minnesota. Uh, Where KQED is on this for listeners who might be interested is that KQED will still post to Twitter for now. And I have Holly Kernan, our chief content officer, statement on this, which is KQED disagrees with Twitter's decision to label NPR and PBS as government-sponsored media, which Twitter defines as, quote, government having involvement over editorial content. This is patently false for both NPR and PBS, as well as for KQED and other member stations, which are editorially independent social media outlets too often 
just encourage the worst instincts of human behavior and promote disinformation, KQED will continue to responsibly post our fact-based journalism and content that connects, inspires, and informs our audiences in all the places they expect us to be. So a little bit of a range of different reactions to what is going on. I do want to invite our listeners just to share their thoughts on NPR's decision to stop tweeting. What do you think of that? You can tell us by emailing forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at KQED Forum. We're still there. You can call us at 866-733-6786-866-733-6786. Shireen Ghaffari, you know, as I was reading that statement from our chief content officer, it was also just making me think of how much communication I feel like I've gotten about Twitter since (laughs) Musk took over. I mean, I'm thinking about how I got emails, you know, reminding me to secure my accounts about major outages that were going on to help us understand what was happening or, or to explain why the company wasn't going to pay for blue check marks, and so on. So it, it really kind of feels like a lot of things have happened to get us to this point where we're now talking about organizations contemplating major news organizations, legacy news organizations contemplating leaving the platform. Yeah, that's right. I think that there's also been a lot of quiet quitting on Twitter amongst journalists, right? I've, I've talked to um, colleagues in my profession who say they're only using it now to you know post their articles, but they're not going to put their witty asides or their kind of like reporter's notebook off the cuff comments on Twitter anymore. Yeah, you've described Twitter as, I think, a degraded product. What makes you say that? How has it been degraded? I mean, first of all, the, the like clearest metric of that, of that, I think, is just the number of outages that we've seen. So mm. um, I believe it was four in the last month alone where there's like a significant period of time that Twitter is just not working. Um, but then we also see these kind of more minor subtle glitches. Um, some like, for example, earlier this month, uh, what was supposed to be a feature that was for private tweets for you to just share tweets with your friends uh, were actually being broadcast to the public. Um, so that's one kind of embarrassing example. But there have been many, many more. Um, where we're just seeing the product sort of break down. And it doesn't come as a surprise because 85 or sorry, over 80 percent of Twitter's staff uh, from pre-Elon times is gone. They've either been laid off or they've quit. Yeah, there's been all of those layoffs. And of course, that's going to have an impact. And we are feeling them for sure. The other thing is just there is a documented rise in hate speech. It's not just perceived or anecdotal. That's right. I think that, um, you know, everyone's feed is different. So obviously, you know, people have uh, certain accounts they follow and you may be more likely to see hate speech if you follow accounts that are already kind of extremist. But we are seeing just, you know, several outside reports document that the sheer volume of uh, people saying certain slurs like the N-word, for example, has increased. A December report from the Center for Countering Digital Hate cited a 200 percent increase in the daily rate of the N-word being used on Twitter since Elon took over. We just learned also that uh, Twitter modified its hate speech policy to remove language that was protective of transgender people. I think Mm -hmm. Glad condemned this. What do we know about that? 
Yeah, so Twitter sort of quietly removed a uh, rule in its in its uh, policies around hate speech that said that you were not allowed previously to misgender someone on Twitter. So that's when you know someone has a a chosen gender and someone else sort of purposely um, uses the gender that they don't want to be affiliated with, and. Um, Twitter kind of just quietly took out that protection from their their list of rules. Took out the protection from their list of rules. Though, as I understand it, um, you can still report it if it happens. The question is, how far of a major shift in policy does removing that from the language mean? But I can see why it would be extremely... Uh, extremely disconcerting in the midst of all these other issues related to hate speech as well. The other justification that Elon Musk gave with regard to hate speech is that people should be able to have freedom of speech, but not freedom of reach. Do you Mm -hmm. think that there's any validity to that or integrity behind that statement, just as there are all these questions, marks about the transgender language being removed? (sighs) I mean, I think that statement itself isn't controversial and has been said by many people before Elon Musk, right, that um, what's more important than this hate speech being on the platform is how widely it gets distributed, right? Um, what the big question is, is is Elon Musk actually holding to that? Is right. Are these slurs actually being seen by more or less people? Musk says that fewer people are seeing it. He says that he's going to start labeling when uh, hate speech is downranked on the feed. So he's trying. he says he's trying to be more transparent about it. But we just haven't seen that yet, you know, publicly. And again, um, outside reporting doesn't provide any proof for that so far. Uh, the Center for Countering Digital Hate actually did, uh, in part, as part of their December report, showed that um, at least by their accounts, some some hate speech is being seen or engaged with, like clicked on or retweeted more than less. Yeah, and we're talking with Shireen Ghaffari, senior correspondent for Vox, covers the social media industry. And also Bobby Allen is with us, business reporter covering tech for NPR. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your thoughts about NPR's decision to stop tweeting. Are you a regular user? Have you noticed changes in the last six months? If you've left the platform, do you miss it? You can call 866-733-6786. You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about the decision by NPR and some other public media organizations to leave Twitter after owner Elon Musk labeled them state-affiliated or government-funded media. And we're looking at what's happened to Twitter in the six months since Musk has taken over. We're talking with Bobby Allen, business reporter covering tech for NPR, and Shireen Ghaffari, who also covers tech for Vox, senior correspondent there covering the social media industry. And you, our listeners, are weighing in with your thoughts, what you think of NPR's decision to go silent. If you're a regular user, whether or not you've noticed changes in the last six months, or if you left, do you miss it? And have you found a viable alternative? You can email forum at kqed.org, call 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. Let me go to Brandon in Foster City, who's on the line. Hi, Brandon. You're on. Good morning, everybody. Um, Nina, thanks for taking the call. I think I just want to give uh, NPR a high five. I think it's a great decision. Uh, I think a wonderful tagline slash report or reply back to such an accusation would be the data site. My understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, Mina, is that uh, NPR gets 1% or less of its funding from national government uh, 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 sources and about 57% of its funding from donors. And so there's no greater uh, numbers like that that show people are voting with their dollars. Second, I'd like to just share a bumper sticker I saw a photo of on a Tesla that said, bought, it was a disclaimer, it said, bought before we knew how awful he was. So <laughs> I just think that was funny and very telling about uh, Musk. And I, I, so, yeah, and I'll yeah. take my uh, response off there. But share that data. That data is uh, speaks volumes, and I think NPR needs to uh, do a better job mm. of publicizing that and making that more prevalent. Bobby Allen, thanks, Brandon. Uh, yeah, do you want to get a little more specific into that less than 1% that NPR gets from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting? Right. I think if there's one silver lining in this saga with Elon Musk over the label on NPR's account, it's that it has illuminated exactly what uh, NPR's finances are. There is this sort of misconception in Washington and you know across parts of the US that NPR gets a lot of federal funding. But right, about 1% of our of our annual operating budget comes from competitive grants from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And that money is allocated to NPR member stations that are often in rural and disadvantaged parts of the country to make sure that uh, PBS and NPR can still operate in these regions. And, you know, sometimes uh, Republicans will use as a rallying cry, defund NPR when there is a story or coverage that is not to their liking. But then when you really scrutinize how the financial structure um, actually operates at NPR, uh, one is quick to learn that NPR is not that reliant on on federal funding at all. And then, and critically, there is no editorial control. NPR has been, since it was established, an independent news organization free from any influence of uh, you know, the federal government, unlike, uh, you know, uh, sort of propaganda organs in in Russia and China, which, um, you know, are sort of uh, subject to the influence of uh, centralized authoritarian governments. And do you know what NPR's response is to the 
frequently asked, well, then why just not stop taking it if it's so little of your budget? Again, I, it's, this puts me in sort of an awkward position I know. because I, <laughs> I I'm don't not, really know the I'm, answer. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not an NPR spokesperson. I'm a r- reporter for NPR, of course. So I can't. And really, on business I can, and on the tech yeah, industry, yeah, I can't, not, I, I, not I, a full conflict, I, for example. No, I can't. I can't exactly uh, comment on that. But um, but yeah, like like I said, I, I am sort of heartened that if there's one good thing that comes out of this, it's that people actually know how NPR is funded, because there was a lot of misconceptions about that previously. Yeah. And I think people also realize that in a robust democracy, there can be, you know, a real desire to have a media infrastructure that uh, exists without it meaning that it holds sway over media organizations. Um, But that said, there are, you know, listeners who feel quite torn by the decision. The sister writes, I'm torn by the decisions of responsible news organizations like NPR, PBS, and some of the local affiliates to pull out of Twitter on one hand, it's a natural reaction to Musk's arbitrary and capricious labeling of these res- of these responsible news organizations. On the other hand, if the responsible news organizations are gone from the platform, then the only voices left will be the propagandists and conspiracy mongers like Fox News. Shireen, I imagine you've also heard this concern. Curious to get your thoughts. Yeah, completely. I think I think Elon Musk has been openly hostile and antagonistic toward traditional media of all kinds, right? Especially media that he sees as having a liberal bias, um, which, you know, he, he, you know, in one of his recent tweets, he put Fox News and BBC on the same level, saying that he was doing left leaning interviews one week with the BBC and the next week he would do right leaning uh media interviews. So that gives you a sense of kind of where how he places media outlets on the spectrum, right? So I think it's helpful to understand that in the context of what Elon Musk is doing here. Part of his stated reason for buying Twitter is to take away power from what he sees as like liberal media elites um, and checkmarked journalists uh, and redistribute it to a wider range of people, including uh, people who are more on the right. And so I think as a journalist, you know, you you don't want to not be a part of the conversation, uh, but you also fee- you may feel strange contributing to a platform where the CEO is openly hostile toward your newsroom. Um, so I think that does put us all in kind of this conundrum and uh, complicating matters. There's still no really good alternative for Twitter, in my view. Yeah. Well, let me bring Shannon McGregor into the conversation. Assistant Professor at the Hussman School of Journalism and Media at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where she studies the relationship between social media and journalism. Professor McGregor, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. We heard that concern from the listener that if, you know, legacy fact-based news organizations leave, we'll have propagandists left. And I do want to ask you how significant you think NPR's departure these departures now from other public media outlets. There were some that left even before NPR uh, decided to go silent on Twitter. How significant you think this is in terms of a potential impact on the quality of the information that's on Twitter? Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, whether or not you support those decisions, certainly it means, you know, hundreds or thousands of tweets maybe combined less a day uh, appearing or potentially appearing in someone's timeline that are, you know, good, strong reporting. Um, But on the other hand, most of the information that people get on Twitter about what's going on 
isn't coming from the accounts of news organizations themselves. It's coming from the journalists who work for them, um, you know, or being shared uh, by other people who have maybe read a story. Um, so I'm not sure that it's going to, you know, make as huge of an impact, but I think it does make a sort of statement about what these news organizations and maybe what others think about Twitter under Elon's leadership. Were you surprised that NPR decided to leave? Um, not really. I mean, I, I think that, you know, uh, as the other guests are saying, you know, Elon has been pretty openly critical and hostile to media organizations. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, how could they stay on, right, with this sort of labeling that, you know, undermines their credibility? Um, I certainly understand the decision to do it uh, and wasn't surprised necessarily by their decision to do it. Um, but I also think that it really hurts Twitter more than it hurts NPR. Um, Twitter has always uh, has become this sort of legitimate space where news happens and where we go to know what's happening because journalists and news organizations have been on it. Uh, and that made Twitter this sort of legitimate space for news and politics. And so big news organizations like NPR, like PBS leaving the platform, hurts that legitimacy. Well, let me go to caller Stephen in Napa next. Hi, Stephen. You're on. Hi. Um, I um, think I, Kudos to NPR for getting off of Twitter. I think it's a nothing more than a wannabe insult comic and fake news app. And I think what it's done is it's made journalists extremely lazy. Hmm. So uh, c congratulations. Um, and look, I come from the production world, so I I've seen what social media has done to, to traditional broadcast content. So kudos to NPR. I wish you'd done it a long time ago. Hmm. Um, and please don't go back. You know, have your IT department come up with another solution. You guys have all the data in the world from all your subscribers. So um, uh, Stephen, thankfully, yeah. you are who you are, and I appreciate what you've done. Thank well, you. thanks. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. I'm really struck by uh, Stephen's comment about Twitter, how Twitter has made journalists lazy, or there has been a certain laziness that may have pervaded some journalism with regard to its use of tweets. I know, Shannon McGregor, you have thought about this quite a bit. Do you think Stephen's right to some extent? Certainly, we have seen uh, journalists, you know, come to rely on Twitter for things like, you know, as they've described to me, taking a pulse, you know, of how people are reacting to something that's going on, uh, for finding sources. And of course, you know, that can uh, turn out negative sometimes. Um, but I also, you know, I want to push back a little bit and say it was also as research of, you know, some of my colleagues has found that it was because of Twitter that there was increased coverage of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, which brought a lot of voices and perspectives that had not necessarily been centered in the mainstream media before. Um, and so, you know, I think it's really hard for us to say whether it's been all good or all bad as far as it goes for journalism. Well, Matthew writes, I find tweets and Twitter to be a useless tool for effective communication. We should not be forced to use a private company app to communicate and connect. Why aren't journalists talking about how ridiculous it is that politicians and companies feel the need to use Twitter? Shireen, you touched on this a little bit about how journalists maybe feel sort of a conundrum with regard to being parts of organizations and staying on Twitter when the organization is being called out in this way, in this misleading and and, uh, you know, basically misleading attack by by Elon Musk. But at the same time, I think Matthew's comment points to another reason why journalists stay, which is that, yes, 
politicians, company leaders, organization leaders, major cultural movers and shakers are still on this platform. And it's Mm -hmm. something that we still really need, right, to be able to know what's going on in the world because other people are using it and journalism holds the powerful to account. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, journalism happened before Twitter. <laughs> I'm old enough to have you know, reported uh, local news before the age of looking at Twitter every morning to see what, you know, who was saying what. But I do think Twitter has made it extremely more efficient for journalists to, as Shannon was saying, get a pulse on what's happening. It also has lifted up these often underserved communities and voices. Um, I think we shouldn't forget that, you know, the Arab Spring and the Green Movement protests in Iran and so many kind of global activist movements and and uh, mainstream media coverage of them has happened in large part due to Twitter and other social media platforms. So I think no one doubts that this technology can be extremely powerful and useful for quality journalism and just for public conversation. I think the question is, what will replace Twitter, if anything? Mm-hmm. I think journal. I think many journalists would gladly shift to another platform if they felt that it truly um, captured the zeitgeist as much as Twitter does amongst movers and shakers, and if it was e- as easy to use, sort of, as Twitter. And I think there hasn't yet been an app that's hit that sweet spot of both being really easy to use and having this critical mass of kind of influential people on the platform. Yeah. Bobby Allen, we've known for a year since, I guess, Elon Musk first made the moves to take over Twitter, uh, that people were hungry for a potential replacement. And it's been now six months since he's taken over. Why does it seem like alternatives have struggled to take advantage of and replace Twitter? Uh, Shireen brings up the fact that Twitter's good at capturing the zeitgeist. It's got a critical mass. What do you think are are some of the biggest reasons? Yeah, I mean, there's no shortage of Twitter rivals that have tried to seize this moment, have tried to say, okay, well, Twitter seems to be in decline. Let's really sort of ramp up our marketing to poach Twitter users over to our service, whether it's the decentralized German platform, Mastodon, whether it's Twitter rival post. I mean, the list goes on and on. Facebook is is reportedly developing a a Twitter competitor. But the problem is is something that uh, researchers like Shannon refer to as uh, network effects, which is sort of a fancy way of describing how um, platforms like Twitter have so many people, right? It's almost too big to fail, right? That so many newsmakers, so many influential people are already there that it's sort of hard to replace that conversation, right? And I think Reddit calls itself the front page of the internet, but I actually think it's more apt to call Twitter the front page of the internet. I mean, I could speak as a, as a journalist covering daily news that it does make me kind of twitchy, right? I mean, it's become almost this assignment desk. The first thing I do when I wake up in the morning as a journalist is see what my colleagues colleagues at other publications are saying to see what people in the tech world and the VC world are saying. I mean, I'm totally glued to it every day for hours and hours and hours. And sometimes that does lead to a a new voice or a new story or an interesting question that I'll pursue. But other times it just has me sort of spinning down these endless rabbit holes and never producing anything. So I see sort of both sides of Twitter in terms of it being a great service for journalists and also, you know, maybe sort of enabling some of journalists' worst instincts. At the same time, it's it's a really essential reporting tool. I have found, as Shireen was saying, so many really, really important sources uh, through Twitter. I've built so many relationships on Twitter. And yeah, it's just a really difficult thing to reproduce elsewhere. Uh, Shannon McGregor, 
What do you think in terms of why another platform hasn't emerged to take the place of Twitter? I'm so struck by Bobby's point that it almost feels like what we're seeing is something that's too big to fail. Are there other issues that you see? Yeah, I mean, I think that is sort of the main thrust of it. You know, if all the journalists and politicians and celebrities um, and just sort of, you know, uh, funny and important cultural voices all decided tomorrow to leave and go to the same platform um, and to connect with each other just like they had on Twitter, maybe one of these, you know, rivals would work out. Um, but that's unlikely to happen, right? And and so instead, it becomes this place where, you know, you feel like I, I even if you want to leave, you're really hesitant to because you're going to be losing, you know, touch of what's going on as sort of Bobby was talking about um, and, and worry that you might not be able to find those same people that you have connected with on that platform somewhere else. So, both Bobby and Shireen have talked about it from a journalistic perspective in terms of the value that Twitter actually provides. And that's actually one of the things that has become clearer over the course of these last six months to a year as more people were trying to get off. And, and I've heard people who have and then felt like they, they had to come back because they weren't finding what they needed. I'm wondering if also more broadly, it makes you think about the value that it's had overall on our culture. I mean, it's had plenty of problems, but if you feel like it's it's had a certain value just culturally for us as a, as a nation. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, you know, I think one of the values it's had is that, you know, ability for voices that were not really present, uh, you know, either in news coverage or just even, you know, more broadly within our society to have a larger voice. And I think that's been mm -hmm. something, you know, that has been really important uh, and has significant impacts, right, on us all. And I think one of the other reasons that it's been important, um, both for people on it, but also people off of it who hear about what happens, you know, on Twitter or see the impacts of it, is for all the negative and, and bad things and even serious and important things, right, that have happened on Twitter. Um, also, a lot of like, it's really fun, right? And there's sort of like these uh, memes that have been going for years on Twitter um, and, you know, inside jokes. And, and that also makes it really hard to leave, but also shows how, you know, these platforms, social platforms, Twitter included, can become these really sort of culturally important things. It's one of the places where we, you know, play out what's going on in our society. Yeah, whether you use it a lot or not, there is a certain connectivity uh, on it as well. A lot of our listeners are saying uh, they don't use Twitter. Rick writes, I was not a heavy user of Twitter pre-Musk. I mostly used it as a news aggregator with the changes I was hearing about. I didn't want to support it anymore, so I closed my account a few months ago. I don't miss it at all. Chris writes, hooray, it's heartening to see mainstream media taking a stand. And Todd writes, Twitter is and should have been dead long ago. Real journalists should not be participating in it, especially now. Rather, journalists should gather behind a social media site run by Reuters or the AP Newswire. Leave the trolls to the trolls. Lots of different opinions about the value of this social media platform. And we're looking at how NPR left it and how Elon Musk is leading it. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about Twitter, about how Elon Musk has been running the company for the last six months, how media firms are exiting as the platform seems to be stumbling. We're talking with Shireen Ghaffari, senior correspondent covering social media for t- for Vox. Bobby Allen is business reporter covering tech for NPR. Shannon McGregor is a senior researcher with the Center for Information Technology and Public Life and assistant professor at the School of Journalism and Media at the University of North Carolina. And you, our listeners, are our listeners, and we are hearing from you, as we always love to do. You are emailing us, forum at kqed.org, calling us at 866-733-6786, or finding us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at KQED Forum to tell us what you think of NPR's decision to stop tweeting, what your experience has been like as a regular user since Musk took over, if you've left, whether or not you miss it, and we're hearing your questions. Hunter, in Sonoma. Thanks for calling. You're on. Hi, everybody. Um, Yeah, you know, my point is I follow Twitter. I think there's great journalistic stuff on Twitter, but I find there's so much information, misinformation, that when I go to check the source, there's nothing to check Hmm. unless it's like a New York Times or an NPR. So I just think it's a real Twitter, such a disservice because there's so much information. And if you're not a critical thinker like I am who double checks everything, it's just going to create a lot of bad stuff in our culture, which it already has done. So I think Twitter should go away (laughs) or change to something that's fact-checked. Well, Hunter, thanks for sharing. Um, Shireen, I mentioned earlier in the show that Elon Musk has been on a bit of a, a media tour. He's making the rounds, trying to reassure advertisers, it sounds like, that uh, what Hunter thinks isn't true, that in fact it is very much a valuable place for people where good, uh, solid information is being shared, reliable information is being shared across the platform and so on. Um, can you just, though, give us a sense of whether or not Twitter which lost advertisers, uh, has seen those advertisers come back, that uh, that those fears that many advertisers had when he took over, that it could become a place of more disinformation and potentially more hate speech, that it hasn't had as much of an effect? It has absolutely had an effect on advertising. And I think the um, biggest detriment to Twitter's business since Elon Musk took over has been Elon Musk himself, his... Uh, tweets, his kind of uh, erratic online presence and the fact that he has at times uh, tweeted out controversial subject matters that that 
advertisers don't want to be associated with. Um, like when a few months ago, he retweeted a conspiracy theory about Nancy Pelosi's husband um, and his brutal attack. Um, he later you know, apologized and deleted the tweet. But point being, I think advertisers can't trust that the steward of the brand himself is sort of being responsible in what kind of information he's he's leveraging on the platform, what what um, what is truth to him and what is not. Um, every outside report I've seen shows that advertisers have not come back. Elon insists that they are. He said that as recently as last week in the BBC interview. So, um, you know, only Elon has direct access to, to Twitter's books right now because it's a private company. Um, but uh, we're seeing reports from the Washington Post that revenue has dropped by as much as 75% recently. Um, and in my own reporting, I've showed that uh, over half of Twitter's advertisers have not returned to the platform. Mm. Yeah. And that's like 90% of its revenue. Bobby, what about numbers that we're seeing about Twitter actually losing users? What are the data showing? Well, Elon Musk likes to say that Twitter is more popular than ever. But every single day, I feel like I open my inbox and I see a new independent look at Twitter usage that shows declines since the Elon era. And as Shireen pointed out, you know, when when Twitter was a public company and it had, you know, SEC disclosure requirements, reporters in the public would have sort of a window into how usage was going, whether users, there were more users, or whether there were fewer users, or whether it was sort of staying even, and we just don't know. So we have these outside analytical firms that give estimates, and then we have the words coming out of Elon Musk's mouth, and it's sort of hard to know where the truth is sometimes. Well, let me go to caller Larissa, and Hayward, hi, Larissa, you're on. I was just going to make a comment about um, the so with Twitter, I understand that there's a um, wanting to listen to those news sources. And that's a big part behind it. I left Twitter a long time ago. And my solution to finding those news sources has just been to listen to NPR and to be more selective in terms of going directly to those sources versus Mm. just getting a lot of fake news yeah, from Twitter and social media. So have you found you've been able to replace it with, I mean, I've heard people say good old-fashioned newsletters from the publications themselves, right? They That tell you what they're reporting on and so on and, and no longer this sort of social media aggregate. Well, thanks for your call, Larissa. Let me go to Suzanne next in Oakland. Hi, Suzanne, you're on. Hi, I... Um think the reason one of the reasons that we're even discussing this is when Trump was president first term I mean first term only term I hope I hope but anyway he uh, used Twitter to conduct official White House business and the media was you know they came out and said how they you know this is unprecedented and you know, everybody was like shocked and this had never been done. And that's where it got left. It was not challenged. And I think it absolutely should have been challenged. The media should have challenged it also, because this is not a forum that a president of the United States of America should be utilizing to conduct any kind of official government business. And furthermore, I don't want to know a politician's opinions. I want to know their policy. Hmm. 
I want to know what they're going to act on. Because when we start getting, this is like Twitter was a social media place for teeny boppers and up to, you know, communicate and everything. I think it's great for the arts. I think it's good for that kind of communication. I think it has absolutely no business being utilized as a real journalistic uh, source and nor as as, as what a, a president should use. And that normalized it because everybody was just so in shock that they didn't challenge it. And I'm oh, like, yeah, oh, sorry to cut you off there, Suzanne. I just wanted to get Shannon McGregor's thoughts on what you're saying because I think you're making a lot of interesting points about the the use of something uh, as almost like a public square, which is what Elon Musk has tried to say it is, but really it's owned by a single billionaire. Shannon McGregor, yeah. what do you think of what Suzanne is saying with regard to its use now by the president or the president or the way it was used by Trump? Yeah, I mean, I hear some of those points, and I think that was uh, a particularly chaotic time to both just be on Twitter, um, to be alive in the world, um, and to also be a journalist trying to make sense of everything. And and as a researcher, you know, I, I agree with some of those points in that it was Trump's use of Twitter that. Uh, really drove a lot of that media coverage that he got, right? Like if something he was getting bad coverage on one of his policies, he tended to tweet something like pretty ridiculous, <laughs> you know, shortly after that. And, and it was able to uh, quite often shift the media narrative to that. Um, however, I do think, you know, that in the same way that, you know, we were talking about how some activists, you know, uh, or, you know, international movements that have not necessarily gained mainstream coverage, you know, previously have been able to utilize Twitter to reach journalists to get sort of that, you know, broader coverage and become part of a broader conversation around, you know, policies like the, you know, police uh, violence against Black people in this country. Those those are the same mechanisms, right? And so it's it's sort of hard to throw out um, all of it without missing a lot of the good. And I think Twitter, along with other social media platforms, is also another place where politicians that don't have as much resources behind them have been able to come to find a following. So allowing you know uh, other types of challengers, new types of politicians, um, enter this sort of electoral space. Twitter and other social media platforms have been. Uh, really important for that. Well, Josh writes, good job to NPR for ditching Twitter. More should join in. If Twitter is reduced to 4chan, then its valuation will drop to that of 4chan, and the new stakeholders will be left holding the bag. Liza writes, I think this is a huge misstep. First, it's very early in the Musk takeover. Who knows what will really happen? Second, my understanding is NPR's biggest problem is lack of interest among the younger generation, especially younger millennials. What better way to gain traction with this group than to stay on Twitter and attract attention. For that matter, what better way to increase leader listenership and combat the Musk bias than by staying on Twitter and continuing to provide sober, well-journaled news coverage? Another listener, Kathy, writes, people should think about resisting the concept that you have to use Twitter just because everyone else does. We all can make a choice. Integrity in journalism matters. Support factual information by donating to NPR. I donated $100 today to reflect the fact that NPR is turning away from a valuable platform, that it was a hard decision, but the right one. We are talking with... 
Bobby Allen, business reporter covering tech for NPR. Shireen Ghaffari, senior correspondent covering the social media industry for Vox. Shannon McGregor, assistant professor at the School of Journalism and Media at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And we're talking with you, our listeners, telling us what you think of NPR's decision to stop tweeting. If you are a regular user and have noticed changes, or if you've left and you miss it, or if you're still on, curious what would make you leave. And uh, you are telling us by posting on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, calling us at 866-733-6786, and by emailing forum at kqed.org. Pete writes, too many journalists have contaminated the news with tweets about their personal lives and self-promotion. I learned in Journalism 101 that there is no I or me in objective journalism. I don't recall ever seeing pictures of Walter Cronkite's cats. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. So, Shireen, where is Twitter headed? You have talked about how, I think your piece is called, Is Twitter Finally Dying? <laughs> <laughs> like, what is the future for this organization? I know Musk has some big ideas. Yeah. Well, Twitter's not dying yet, to answer that question. Um, but I think there are definitely signs of decline uh, we've discussed. I think Elon's vision for it is to potentially turn it into what he calls an everything app. So he actually recently um, changed the name. Uh, Twitter as a company no longer exists. It's now part of the X company. Um, and his idea with that is to make this app similar to the app like WeChat in China, which people use to do basically everything in their daily lives. They use it to not just message their friends, but to like catch rides. So it's sort of like Uber, Facebook and DoorDash all in one. Um, and that seems to be that's what he's kind of talked about and alluded to. It's still very early stages and we haven't seen too much on that front, but it seems like he's starting potentially with payments first. Um, um, as this just to try to make Twitter basically into a place that's more than just social media. Bobby Allen, what do you think about that plan for Musk? And how realistic is it if he's losing resources, it sounds like, to be able to turn this into something that will do far more than what Twitter currently does, which will require more resources and more staff when, as you pointed out, he's lost more than half his staff. Like, what do you think the prospects are of this? I mean, lest we forget, Elon built some of his early fortunes on the world of online payments. You know, he, he founded the company X.com that eventually merged with another company to become PayPal. So he does have some expertise in this area. But every expert I've asked um, about this idea of sort of an all-in-one Swiss army knife kind of app, you know, they quickly point out that, you know, it'd be very difficult to do in the U.S. for a multitude of reasons, not least of which because of the antitrust environment in Washington, right? Um, another way of saying, you know, regulators and lawmakers wouldn't be so keen to have an app in which every single thing that we do, all of our business that we conduct happens on one app. I mean, there's the Biden administration really has its focus on trying to foster competition in Silicon Valley and having an app that kind of does everything might be seen as kind of monopolistic. So that would be one big hurdle that that Elon would would have to overcome. And, um, you know, there are a lot of technical issue, issues to that that we, he would have to clear. So I'm sort of skeptical. And, you know, if you know Elon, you know that he has a lot of sort of pipe dream ideas that he likes talking about, many of which never come to fruition. So it's, you know, not always the safest bet to take what he says on Twitter very seriously. 
Yes, not always a safest bet to take what he says on Twitter very seriously. I'm wondering how seriously advertisers, Shireen, take things like poop emojis in response to legitimate (laughs) press requests uh, to try to verify and deliver context to news by reaching out Mm -hmm. to Twitter or how they feel about the fact that, uh, you know, he put up like a a Dogecoin in place of the Bluebird at some point. (laughs) Do you think that people just kind of wave their hands and say, oh, that's Elon being Elon? Or do you think it really does have an impact? I think stuff like the the more sort of juvenile antics, like the poop emoji auto response that any journalist will now get if they email press at Twitter. I don't think that's what's driving advertisers off the platform. I think they sort of shrug that off as just Elon being Elon. I think what is more troubling to them is anything that threatens their reputation as a brand. So they worry about brand safety. You know, a company uh, does not want... um, to be associated with hate speech, with Elon have changing his username at one point to something um, that was kind of a profane joke about his private parts. That's the kind of stuff that crosses a line, I think, for them where they're just, you know, they, they don't want to take that risk. Yeah. Well, what about people being willing to work for the organization if he wants to expand it to the extent that he does? What impact does it have on, you know, people who would would come to work for an organization with a with a leader like that? I mean, I've talked to women at Twitter and posed this question to them directly. Um, you know, how does it feel right now to be working in a company where your boss is making openly juvenile sort of sexist jokes? And, uh, you know, people I've talked to are, are uncomfortable with it, but what can they do? Um, you know, some, some people sort of rely on the company for... Um, you know, it's not a very good time in Silicon Valley right now. So while in earlier times they may have been able to switch to another tech company, if you have a job at Twitter, you may just sort of need to hold on to it at this point in time. Well, let me go to caller V in Berkeley. Hi, V. Real quick, what's on your mind? Hi. Yes, quickly. I think Twitter and all social media ought to be publicly financed and it should have a a board of directors. Mm. It should have ethics. And all of these, we have allowed private companies to take over social media, which is really a public good. And don't blame the victims, people working for Twitter. We all need jobs. We have to work. It's the fact that our culture has allowed billionaires to rule our lives, and we need to take Twitter and PG&E and make them all a public good, which is what they are. Shannon McGregor, what's the likelihood that we could find a social media financed as a utility. In this country, as much as I agree with a lot of the sentiments, uh, you know, expressed by the caller, I think that's uh, unfortunately very unlikely. I think one of the things that our government can do and governments uh, in the EU have done this recently is exhibit uh, exert more control, you know, over both the size and the content in some of these organizations and importantly, allow outside access for data. You know, a lot of the questions we talked about today were about how do we know what's going on the platform? Transparency is important for outside researchers to answer those questions. Well, Ron writes, I don't care what social media, NPR and KQED and Forum are on. Just stay on the radio. We are here. We are with you every day, five days a week. Thank you, listeners, for being with us. Thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. And thank you, Bobby Allen, Shireen Ghaffari and Shannon McGregor for being with us today as well. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.